Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld uh, visiting with you one more time. This is Rob Observations. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Rob Observations. We are at episode six. If you can even believe that this is the sixth installment, I cannot thank you guys enough for joining me on this journey. This is my journey of uh, collecting comics, consuming comics, experiencing comics, eventually a 34-year career in comic books. Uh, this, this has just been the most fun uh, expressing this through you guys on these podcasts. We have covered a ton of ground starting back in 75 when I started to become as obsessed as I would become with comic books. And uh, today, we have, because we have moved through rivalries, we've moved through uh, you know some of these great and amazing runs that have determined how characters like Daredevil and, and the X-Men have been and Batman have been determined and, and depicted now in the modern age, the modern era. Uh, you know, the, the Squadron Supreme, the Squadron Sinister, these 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 DC echoes, and also how the New Titans, when, when we covered uh, the careers of both John Byrne and George Perez, who had the greatest rivalry in, in comics of this age, how, how New Titans kind of was an echo of everything that was going on in the Uncanny X-Men, and it met with tremendous success. So these... these uh, companies uh, that were at the forefront at the time, definitely Marvel and DC were the guys who were just pushing the envelope and, and getting all the sales and all the attention of the kids that were my age. But they, uh, there was also a period that we're going to discuss today where it was in the immediate uh, success, following the immediate success of Star Wars, the boom of licensed comic books that would find their way into Marvel Comics' hands, that would just be this avalanche of titles. And it's at one point, I believe, it's it's almost 30% of Marvel's line across uh, this this kind of late 70s, early 80s, that, that their books were these amazing licensed comics. And, and today we live in a world where there are entire comic companies that are dependent on this licensed model that that Marvel started in 1976 they they started it they mastered it because of their success with Star Wars they became the premier licensing destination for everybody's toy cartoon and movie adaptation you probably wouldn't know that there is an adaptation of the Beatles a hard day's night that is a license that is uh, drawn by uh, George Perez and it it depicts, you know, the Beatles and their career and the movie the Hard Day's Night. That was something that happened retroactively. But I remember getting it and going, wow, George Perez, there's that name again. You're going to hear him again. You're going to hear him a lot. Uh, did this Beatles adaptation. Yes, these existed. The Wizard of Oz would retroactively get a Marvel Comics license in a giant treasury edition. And they would go on to do uh, different Oz books following this. But in the Echo of Star Wars, and as we covered earlier in our uh, uh, road trip down the road of how Star Wars actually came to be at Marvel, uh, against Stan's, you know, instincts to pass on it because he thought it was just another, you know, sci-fi, you know, what did he say, ray gun, science fiction epic. Against his instincts, he was convinced by the editor-in-chief at the time, Roy Thomas, to take a shot, and it pumped millions of dollars into Star into into Marvel. Star Wars pumped millions of dollars into Marvel Comics, 
and took them from red ink to black ink and was able to finance so many of the great comics that we enjoyed from that era as I've covered Frank Miller, Daredevil, X-Men, Avengers, all these books you've got to understand that you know that money from Star Wars went a long way into financing even more of the uh, Marvel projects that you came to know and love but it's interesting to note that the first big license Marvel held they got very uh, early on in the 70s and it was a huge hit for them but it was really the only license that they were promoting at the time with any sort of success and it was because of the passion that the creators had for the material and that is Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Barbarian which had been around as a pulp you know novels uh, for, for years for, for, for many many years Conan existed at as, as the written word, novels, uh, maybe a couple different like excerpts in magazines, you know, sci-fi or, or, or fantasy magazines, but there were no comic book adaptations. But Roy Thomas and, uh, and, and Barry Smith and John Buscema would be among the many who would rally to create this Conan comic book license that goes on to be one of Marvel's top comics. It is one of Marvel's top comics. Now, I am not sure the uh, the the amount of money that Marvel paid for that license back in the day. I've got, I've got to venture a guess that it wasn't a whole lot because Conan was not a movie. Conan was not a TV show or a cartoon. It was literally these series of pulp novels that Marvel decided, well, we will uh, we, we will, you know, join in creating this uh, as a series of comic books. And trust me, it wasn't just the one comic. Conan the Barbarian became a huge hit for Marvel, which then became a magazine hit, a monthly magazine hit. They eventually licensed other Conan characters, Red Sonja. They, uh, they, uh, they, they got, like, basically the the entire Robert E. Howard catalog of this barbarian world, Red Sonja, Cole the Conqueror, and Conan, and they went on this run of Conan the Barbarian, Savage Sword of Conan, Red Sonja got her own book, Cole got his own book, and eventually King Conan happened in 1979. And so you've got this entire licensed world that made Marvel uh, uh, a tremendous amount of money, was very successful, and at the end of the day, look, these publishers are in this game to turn a profit to make money and to to you know it's a business you have, you've never got you can't ever forget and i have known this the in my entire time in comics and was well aware of it before i broke into comics it is a business first and foremost they are there to uh sell and move units so conan had existed and that was a a dedicated license that had become kind of a benchmark of 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 marvel conan was on a lot of the different ads that advertise Marvel, you'd see Conan with Spider-Man and with the Hulk and with Captain America. It's because the book had been so well-received and such a bestseller. I mean, you had huge talents like Barry Windsor Smith and John Buscema doing the work of his career. You could tell John loved Conan. It, it, it poured out of him. It was so amazing and so wonderfully detailed. And this, uh, th this, this Conan license... Had, I mean, they were doing Conan uh, uh, merchandising. Conan was on uh, an array of, of four coins that you could get. A uh, Spider-Man coin, a Hulk coin, a Captain America coin, and a Conan coin. I mean, that's how he was in the upper echelon. He was a bestseller. So Star Wars comes along. They they reluctantly go forward with it. It 
becomes their biggest hit of that decade. And what happens? What do you think happens? Everybody starts knocking on Marvel's door. And of course, Marvel is now looking to, whoa, licenses are good. We could, we could do this. Well, right before Star Wars, and maybe this is why Stan is reluctant, but right before Star Wars, they adapted 1976 sci-fi hit Logan's Run. It was a six-issue adaptation, magnificently illustrated, better than the movie, which I love. I love Logan's Run. It's it's a movie of its time. It's got very timely subject matter about the, the worship of youth culture and not getting old and kind of everything that we, we are, are in today. It's never been more applicable. Logan's Run, I read the books, the three books during this last pandemic that we've experienced. I uh, really hunkered down and read the original uh, trilogy of books. It was Logan's Run first, but the success of that in the movie created, you know, Logan's World. Um, it's a great trilogy of books, and and they're really topical, especially nowadays with our obsession with youth, looking young, being young, and a culture that worships being young, and, and a sidebar of, you know, population control. So, but it they turned it into this uh, MGM sci-fi movie, which was before Star Wars by a full year, and it was a big deal. Part of Star Wars razzle-dazzle with fans in movie theaters was how much more advanced. You would think the years between Star Wars and Logan's Run was eight to ten years in the way that one mastered special effects as opposed to the limited special effects of Logan's Run. All that aside, Marvel did an adaptation, and who drew it? Mighty George Perez, inked by Mighty Klaus Janssen, two staples of the comic book industry, not just this age. They would be, Klaus Janssen is still one of the top two, three inkers to ever lay it down in comic books. With a quill, with a brush, the guy has inked Frank Miller on his infamous Daredevil run, which, as we've mentioned, took Daredevil from last to first. He would do killer work on Batman on The Dark Knight with Frank Miller. He would do Daredevil on his own. Frank would write it. Klaus would pencil and ink it. Klaus inked John Byrne. He inked Carmen Infantino. He inked... Uh, you know, on Logan's run, he inked George Perez. He inked Walt Simonson. He inked all of the big, awesome names uh, in the comics industry. So this Logan's run adaptation is by George Perez, Klaus Janssen. It's it's six issues, gives you a lot of material to dig dig into. And I highly recommend seeking out the Logan's run adaptation. Just great covers, great interiors. You know, all total six issues times 22 pages. I mean, you're looking at plus 120 pages of just a great sci-fi adventure, whether there was ever a film or not. And that is the mark of a great adaptation, which rises above the material and makes it its own, which is what Star Wars would do as well. Star Wars was very influential in carving out the world of Star Wars while we all waited three years from Empire Strikes Back. Marvel, each and every month, every 30 days, took Luke, Han, Leia on these amazing journeys. But so 76... Logan's Run comes out. It gets canceled at the eighth issue. They only get two issues where they go outside the movie, and you have to assume that the sales weren't good. It was canceled because the sales weren't good. Maybe it was canceled because the contract ran out. You'd think if the contract ran out that Marvel would have risen to the occasion and ponied up the cash if the book was doing that well. It just seems like it's at some point along the line, Logan's Run was not this gigantic, massive uh, uh, home run hit that everyone was hoping that it would be. And uh, maybe that's why Stan was as reluctant as he was to pursue 
Star Wars. But Star Wars happens. It's a hit. It's a monster. It's a. It, it just 100% drives the business model for this company. And so what would happen over the next few years, you would get just all these licenses. Now, there will be one that rises above all of the others, and we'll get to that towards the end because it comes in the early 80s. But um, in the immediate aftermath, in 1977, if you're a kid like me and you'd grown up, again, we've covered how in the 70s there's a lot of movie weekends, a lot of movies Monday through Friday, you know, the, the weekday after-school movie, a lot of Godzilla, a lot of monsters. Marvel lands the Godzilla license, and Godzilla is an amazing comic book. Just, it, it fits the scope, the scheme of the Godzilla franchise to date, and it runs uh, about 20-some issues. It, it has a nice lengthy run, and the great thing is Marvel cleared the license with Toho Limited, who licenses Godzilla. They, they, they cleared that license to be able to involve Godzilla in the actual day-to-day happenings of the Marvel Universe. So you have Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. hunting down Godzilla. You have the Fantastic Four dealing with Godzilla. You have the Avengers dealing with Godzilla. I mean, it is it is a really kick in the pants. Um, the first cover of Godzilla has him stepping on buildings, wiping them out with his, uh, with his fiery breath, and it says, from Toho Production famed movie series. Now, a year later... Godzilla would come to every Saturday morning on, uh, every Saturday morning we would have Godzilla on NBC, but man, it had this, uh, Godzuki character, like a little sidekick that would fly around accompanying him, and to guys like me, I just wasn't that, like, I was like, okay, I'm watching it for Godzilla, he'd appear maybe once or twice in the cartoon, but they were really intent on making things cute and cuddly with Godzuki. The Marvel series has none of the cute and the cuddly. Like as I said, it has more than its share of Avengers, Fantastic Four, Shield. It really, you know, places itself within the Marvel universe. So Godzilla has got that going for it, and it is. I think every issue is drawn by the amazing Herb Trimpey, who had done a gazillion year run on Hulk that had made himself a household name, and now he comes on Godzilla. And I, I got to be honest, I, 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 this is some of the best. Herb Trimpey work uh, that he's ever done. I mean, I am holding the only collection of Godzilla by Marvel that was allowed to uh, get released. I think it goes back to 2014 um, is when this was this was released, and it is called Marvel. It is the Marvel Essential series. Again, these Essential books are just phenomenal in that they collect the uh, in that they collect. Everything in black and white. We, we refer to them in the business. They call them the phone books. Hey, did you get the new phone book in? They're black and white, like your yellow pages, which, you know, some of you are like, what's the yellow pages? They don't exist anymore. But phone books used to be dropped off every year. It's got all the phone books of everybody in the area, businesses. These Marvel phone books are black and white, cheap newsprint, just the line art, and they're great. And and for some reason, and I, I, I checked, it's not 2014. This, is, this was put out in 2006, some moment in time, Marvel was able to put this together, put this out. There is no color compilation of Godzilla, just this black and white phone book. And it is phenomenal. It covers the whole run. And towards the end of the run, they, in the middle of the run, they had a robot that they, uh, a giant robot that they created, which goes great with the history of giant robots that would battle giant monsters in, in so much of the Tokyo uh, monster movies that we enjoyed as kids. 
they in introduced Red Ronin, their own Marvel's Red Ronin. And Red Ronin would then, after tangling a couple issues, phenomenal covers, phenomenal interiors, tangling with Godzilla, he would go on to battle the Avengers. So stuff that was happening in Godzilla was going into the Marvel Universe. And that is when these licenses worked at their very best. When you had this synergy of what's in the license book actually walks into the Marvel Universe and walks from the Marvel Universe into the license book. It, it, it really made for some of the most fun uh, that I would have as a kid with these books. Again, if you can only imagine when Iron Man Thor and Captain America are flying around trying to deal with this giant Godzilla, the way they handled giant, the way that they handled Godzilla with Fantastic Four, by the way, is that Godzilla was shrunk down. So now he is the size of a human uh, because of what he was exposed to. And, and the whole thing is, can they get him to get sized up again? But there's an entire adventure, an entire issue where Godzilla is in a sewer battling rats because he's been shrunk down. And Marvel was very inventive and innovative with Godzilla, which was in the echo of the Star Wars, uh, which was in the echo of the Star Wars license. It was just a, a great opportunity for Marvel to start getting these licenses and exploiting them. Now, what comes along next, and this is going to fall into the same idea of Godzilla where it interacts with the Marvel Universe, but in 1978, my personal favorite uh, licensed comic that Marvel has ever done outside of Star Wars, alongside Star Wars, it is so brilliant, and uh, I have been waiting for it to be kind of revisited in the years since. I've been, you know, so hopeful that they would, uh, that, 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 that they would revisit this uh as a toy and 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 reissue it but kids my age again a lot of this is from the the 70s were treated to these brand new toys called the micronauts they came from inner space an entire line of toys that featured these smaller uh, action figures they were the same size as Star Wars, but the innovation behind these action figures uh, was again we've we've spoken about how so much of what was going on at this time was was based on uh, on secret alien civilizations and worlds and and you know were the pyramids built by aliens and Aztecs and Incas and all of this lore that was mixing around at the time. Well, oddly enough, the Micronauts had a lot of Egyptian pyramids, uh, uh, kind of kind of Egyptian. Uh, visuals built into the the toys and and these uh, these sarcophaguses like what the the pharaohs were were put into these elaborate tombs these sarcophaguses some of these different micronauts toys especially these different characters called the time travelers came in these different sarcophaguses but then there was like space commander they had and, and there and there was uh, uh, a villain among micronauts the big uh, the biggest of all the figures, his name was Baron Karza. And then there was a uh, opposite him. Baron Karza was completely head-to-toe black with a little red. He was very much a Darth Vader echo, okay? He he just didn't have the cape. And I got to be honest, as far as Darth Vader, Darth Vader echoes go, he's pretty spectacular. He very much stands on his own. Uh, somewhere between Doctor Doom and Darth Vader is Baron Karza. And his opposite is an all-white figure, again, uh, more of a 10-inch figure. Baron Cars was a 10-inch figure and he turned into a centaur. He had a black horse body that you could clip him into, take away his legs. He was connected by magnetic joints 
and uh, fired off rockets, chest rocket, and uh, his hand flew off. Just a, a tremendous, what they call toyability, or, or uh, yeah, toyetic is what I heard the word. Toyetic was was what I heard when I when 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 they adapted the X Force into action figures before the very first issue hit the stands. The designers told me that well, my my designs were very toyetic. So I, that's the first time I heard that word, but it, it goes as far back as you know, 60s, 70s. Baron Karza had an opposite, also 10 inches, uh, also magnetic joints, white. He was completely white, called Force Commander. He was the good guy. Baron Karza was the bad guy. And then there was all these different Micronauts toys, and they were colorful, and they were great interplay, and they were kind of clear plastic. You could kind of see through them, silver heads, silver hands. Google Micronauts toys. Go on YouTube. Watch some of these car commercials. Uh, they're really fun. There was never a cartoon to carry Micronauts, but Marvel did the Micronauts comic. And Marvel's first 12 issues of Micronauts are some of the best comics ever made. Not hype. Drawn by Michael Golden. The, the anchor holding it all together is the artist who did the first 12 issues. Michael Golden would go on to spawn influences as far as Arthur Adams, Mike Mignola, Butch Geis, later known as Jackson Geist, Todd McFarlane, Rob Liefeld, Eric Larson, Mark Silvestri. I can't think of anybody uh, that Michael Golden has not had an immediate impact. His style of drawing, his rendering, poses, gesture, the whole package, his faces, they impacted everybody that followed. He is widely seen as the most influential of an entire generation. J. Scott Campbell, Joe Madiera, everybody was into Michael Golden. He is the benchmark and the anchor that carries this Micronauts run. Micronauts probably has over 120 published comics at Marvel. It, 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 it stopped late in the run and then restarted. And there was uh, an extension of creative teams. One writer helmed most of the first run, the brilliant Bill Mantlo, who would write so many of these amazing licensed comics. But Michael Golden does the first 12 issues consecutive. This amazing body of work, like Herb Trimpey to Godzilla, Michael Golden, except Michael Golden is an artistic barometer that everyone would bite off. He would influence, I mean, the way he draws hair, again, the way he draws figures, uh, his machinery. He is one of the most talented cats to ever come across comic books, and they get him on this toy adaptation. He had been over at DC doing some Batman material. He did Man Bat, Batman issues. He did uh, different covers. He did uh, a few issues of a book called Mr. Miracle. So he was in the business, but then Marvel gets him, and they assign him this Micronauts saga, and I am telling you, Micronauts is up there with Star Wars and beyond. It is so brilliantly visually realized. The concepts are amazing. It goes way beyond the toys. There are characters throughout this book that Marvel contributed. They created a female lead named Marionette. She was a princess that had evaded the uh, clutches of Baron Karza by disguising herself within a carnival, a traveling carnival in the streets of this world and she teams with Commander Ran who Commander Ran is very much the Han Solo of the book and he has a uh, a, a giant ship a Millennium Falcon styled ship that they zoom around with there are an R2-D2 and C3P, C-3PO 
knockoff named Biotron and Microtron, except Biotron is much bigger, much more physical than C-3PO, who is always a bit dainty. Biotron is a badass robot android. And Microtron is as cool as R2-D2, if not cooler, because they built off what would R2-D2 do with like basically extended arms and, and, and more uh, interactivity and more joints and uh, weaponry. So Microtron and Biotron are your robots. Commander Ran is your leader. He is your uh, kind of disgruntled figure who is going to rebel against my, the mighty Baron Karza and the Empire. But the signature character of the whole run for me, and he echoes the toys, that there was a toy called a Croyer. And a Croyer is this kind of gladiator, Russell Crowe figure, fallen from grace, kicked out of his um, hierarchy among the race of Acroyers. Now, he bore the name Acroyer for a race of Acroyers, I know, but it works, trust me. And he is amazing. He's amazing visual, red, full red, full red helmet, obscuring a face with a killer design with these wings on the helmet. He's just a spectacular, visually spectacular, mo modeled after the toy. So Karza and Force Commander and uh, uh, the Time Travelers who would appear intermittently throughout and Acroyer are direct lifts adaptations from the toy. But in building out the story, they would expand and add Commander Ren, Marionette. Oh, Biotron and Microtron are also Micronaut toys. So there's, there's plenty of these toys represented, but they needed more interactivity. They gave uh, a Croyer an, an evil brother, an evil, you know, a prince that had kind of been behind uh, uh, acing him out of his own planet. I mean, a Croyer himself was exiled and uh, would fight in the last issue to regain his name. I, I, later in my uh, consumption of science fiction, I would come across you know, my obsession with Star Trek The Next Generation. I watched it as it aired and followed every episode. And as they furthered Worf's story with the Klingons and being in exile, I it I felt like those guys had read the Acroyer comics, uh, the Acroyer storyline in Micronauts. Because if you don't think that these guys doing TV are reading comics uh, and, and applying them, you are absolutely, uh, you know, you are, you are, you know, kidding yourself. A Croyer's brother, Prince Shaitan, almost like Prince Satan, okay, but another just killer visuals. Guys, you're going to want to go and check these out. You're going to want to go get these Micronauts back issues, much like you're going to want to go get these Logan's Run back issues. And here's the kicker. The Micronauts, after the first issue, they come into Marvel Earth. They they are in inner space, the microverse, and to escape Karza, they warp speed, and on the other side, they land in Marvel 1978. So they actually meet some different Marvel characters. One is Man-Thing, who is Marvel's version of Swamp Thing, a creature from the 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 swamp, a, a, I mean, literally very, very much an echo of Swamp Thing. And they both owe themselves to an earlier comic book character called The Heap, but that is for another time. So three different... Swamp characters, the heap, swamp thing, man thing in descending order of appearance. But so they are definitely in the Marvel Universe. And later on, they encounter a scientist at this uh, lab. And there is a character called Captain Universe that is summoned. He is first appearance is in these Micronaut comics, but he goes on to get his own series appearances and further appears in the micro in the Marvel Universe. 
outside of the Micronauts. Again, you walk into these licensed comics, and what's in these licensed comics walks out into the Marvel Universe. But here's the trick. As great, uh, and, and, the, and the Micronauts would, would be so popular, so popular with the comic book crowd that they would get a four-issue crossover with none other than the X-Men. X-Men Micronauts was a big deal. 1983, 1984, this miniseries comes out. And again, Micronauts is launched in, you know, 1978 is when the first issues come out. And Michael Golden does these first 12 issues, and they are celebrated, amazing. This was my among my favorite comics coming out, and issue 11 and 12, which kind of culminates the entire saga. I mean, this, this should be a cinematic masterpiece. This should absolutely, I mean, the... the the depictions of each one of these characters, their motivation. Baron Karza is as ruthless and nasty as any bad guy I've ever seen. Uh, the 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 war to suppress these people in the microverse, all the different machines, the warriors, the armies, the the role the Micronauts play in the, coming back out of the Marvel universe for the last several issues, and uh, and and closing out the last four issues in wrapping up all of this war in the microverse. It is visually uh, as good as anything that's ever been drawn in comics. Take my word for it. When you see them, you will go, oh, I know what Rob, Rob wasn't over-exaggerating. Michael Golden went on to influence two dozen artists immediately following this for a reason. In a way that maybe even John Byrne and George Perez could not. He was that irresistible. Maybe you picked up the way he drew women. Maybe the, you picked up the way he drew architecture. Maybe you picked up just the uh, the figure form. Art Adams definitely took a lot of his high waist, short his short um, trunk, high waist, long legs. Uh, definitely uh, the big eyes that he would draw on people. I mean, it was Michael Golden is just a phenomenal talent, and unfortunately, he only has two runs in comics that people uh, celebrate him through because he then went on to do a lot of annuals and fill-ins. The other one is a Vietnam book called The Nam. So The Nam is the other dedicated work that you could find Michael Golden on a monthly basis, but it was almost a decade after he did the work here on Micronauts. And Micronauts is fantastic. Licensed book. Michael Golden leaves but does the covers for about the next two years. And they are, I mean, again, covers that are illustrations along the lines of the best of anybody who's ever drawn, period. Not just comic books. He becomes a really a master illustrator. There are a couple issues where the Micronauts meet the Fantastic Four, the Micronauts meet Ant-Man, following this opening 12-issue kind of dedicated saga. You could do the movie without Man-Thing and without Captain Universe, these two kind of little uh, deviations that they make during the run, but the original 12 issues could be its own masterful series. So Micronauts goes on for many issues after. Some great talent comes on. Pat Broderick is, for me, the second best guy to draw this book. It was a direct sequel to the first 12 issues and involves S.H.I.E.L.D. and Nick Fury. And again, we've got so much of the Marvel Universe interacting with these characters. So here's the trick. I would love for you to be able to go on Amazon right now and get the Micronauts trade paperback or the... Logan's Run collected edition of the George Perez, Klaus Janssen movie adaptation with the two issues that took place outside the movies. Those aren't available. It's something that you're going to see throughout this uh, with very few exceptions. 
these aren't these works are not allowed to be collected and trust me companies like idw and devil's do and dynamite have tried but because marvel created so many characters marionette commander ren bug who i have failed to mention is very much a nightcrawler kind of slash spider-man alien insectoid character very leaf very athletic um agile has a cool spear that blasts you comes from a alien race that echoes him more bugs like himself bug and captain commander ran and marionette so many of these characters are marvels marvel owns them so you've got a croyer which is owned by migo migo was the company that put out the toys migo owns baron karza and force commander and biotron and microtron but when they stand next to marionette bug and commander ran who are in every issue who are part of the micronauts cast of eight that are in every adventure well marvel owns those characters marvel cut a deal where what we bring to the table we keep so you can't just walk out and then carry commander ran and marionette and bug with you now in years following this when people have gotten the licenses to do micronauts from migo they've had to create different versions of commander ran and kind of a imitation of marionette and i'd be lying if i told you that any of them could hold the candle it's great seeing a croyer and biotron and microtron and baron karza but they're very machine and armored characters whereas the humanity came from these other original characters that marvel created but this has prohibited since 1977 any sort of collected edition not not a black and white essential you know phone book that i've mentioned not a not a hardcover not a soft cover and these are great travesties to this time this you would know better about michael golden and he wouldn't seem so alien when i mentioned him to you if you're a passing comic book fan if micronauts existed in the oversized edition that it deserves to be in this work is as good as anything you're going to get today this work is not dated it is so phenomenally well done, well told, that it, it deserves to be on a shelf in all manner of great editions. When I talk to you about the X-Men, Days of Future Past, Dark Phoenix, the Titan stuff, the Judas Contract, the early Titans issues, you can buy those in hardcover, oversized editions, multiple different softcover editions. They have standalone, Days of Future Past, standalone hardcover, Dark Phoenix, standalone hardcover judas contract standalone hardcover then you can get like all 50 new teen titans in one giant sized hardcover basically phone book uh that is colored and, and and you can stop a bullet with it so thick it's such a gigantic book that does not that fate is not available to the micronauts or to at least not in color to godzilla or to logan's run and so we're going to continue because micronauts is such a hit it's a hit for marvel it goes a long time. It goes ultimately over well over 100 issues. The first run is in the 70s. This book was trucking. Like I said, it, it uh, they, they would cross over with all the major Marvel characters for a reason. People love these characters. People love the depiction of these characters and the way they interacted with the Marvel Universe at large. And again, until Mego and Marvel can come to some sort of financial arrangement, which would provide us the means to get these reprinted they only exist as back issues so you got to get these at your comic book store so so the, the journey to collect these is harder than it would were they collected so later on down the line marvel grabs a group of giant robots called shogun warriors now again shogun warriors are a big deal in 1978 1979 about a two 
to Christmas cycle. And Godzilla is also part of the Shogun Warriors. They are like 16 inch giant plastic robots that were made in Japan that were carried over here by Mattel. And I can't, uh, I don't have glasses on, I can't pronounce this uh, company. I'll, I'll do my best. The, 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 the parent company that produced Shogun Warriors, because of course they need to be, they need to be given their shout out. That would be the, uh, here I go, the Raj Matsumoto. Matsumoto, okay, that's not so. Matsumoto Corps. Licensed to Mattel, who licensed to Marvel, and you got the Shogun Warriors. Herb Trimpey jumps from Godzilla, does double double chores for a while on Godzilla and Shogun Warriors, and Shogun Warriors runs for about 18, 19 issues, and it is phenomenal. These as big as Godzilla, I mean, they're they're like 30 stories tall, giant robots that fight for humanity and have all these different crazy adventures. And I am telling you, again, they cross over with Marvel characters and interact with the Marvel Universe, which is part of the charm and the exact reason that the Shogun Warriors are not in a collected edition and a body of work that you cannot enjoy on its own merits because you have to get these back issues because they're not available. But again, now, what are we talking about? Logan's Run, Star Wars, Micronauts, Shogun Warriors, Godzilla. Okay, those are five licenses. Well, we don't, we haven't even begun to cycle out how much uh, Marvel would start adapting. I mentioned to my buddy the other day that I was holding in my hands the Treasury Edition. They did several different editions of this movie, but in 1978, you don't think that, I mean, immediately following Star Wars, that Steven Spielberg did not packed with Marvel and make sure that he also had a comic book adaptation of his Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And Close Encounters was a giant movie the summer of 1978 and uh, or, or, the, or the holidays of 1978. It was a huge, huge, huge science fiction movie. Spielberg's uh, magnificent epic just, uh, I mean, really following on the heels of Jaws to take a movie that scope and get those performances and... Uh, have a movie that is just that amazing. Well, Marvel gets the license, does the movie adaptation. Walt Simonson and Klaus Janssen. Where have you heard those names before, right? Again, these guys were the benchmarks of this industry for a reason and, and built comic books up during this age because they put in the work. Walt Simonson does the most amazing adaptation. It, it, it is on par with Spielberg's movie visually. The I mean, especially the big giant treasury edition, which is, you know, like sev 17 inches tall, uh, 12 inches wide. It is so magnificent. I highly recommend you hunting that down. It was a magazine. It was a treasury edition. It was a comic book. But so they, again, added to their, you know, belt. Star Wars, boom, Close Encounters. Well, what would come along uh, later on, you know, they don't stop there. Marvel, of course, does the film adaptation to Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it is beautiful. John Buscema, who rose to fame drawing every Marvel comic and the aforementioned Conan provides the art chores on the movie adaptation of Raiders of the Lost Ark and it is glorious, beautiful. Marvel had just mastered this. It was blue chip. Marvel, you could expect every Marvel comic, especially their, their adaptations, they didn't give them to secondary guys. They gave them the main players and they knocked them out of the park and they were just magnificent and they were beautifully illustrated and they would match up with what you were seeing on screen so well. They even did an adaptation of Olivia Newton-John's Xanadu. So, you know, you, you got a, a Marvel super special Xanadu adaptation. And that, 
you're like, wait, they did it. They did an adaptation to Xanadu. Remember, I told you they did the adaptation earlier on to uh, uh, the Beatles' A Hard Day's Night. I mean, there everything was up for grabs when Star Trek The Motion Picture comes out in 1979. Who do you think is on that? It's Marvel. Marvel gets the Star Trek license. Because why wouldn't they, right? They got Star Wars. Of course they're going to do that. They do the movie adaptation and then go on to do the first in in many years uh, comic book adaptations of Star Trek and those adventures. And they've got Dave Cockrum from the X-Men and all manner of talent pulling that off. It's, it's, it's uh, again, speaks to the respect that they had built up uh, with, with, with licensors who, again, go back to Charles Lippincott who definitely wanted um, a, 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 a comic book adaptation of Star Wars so that they would be able to tell people, hey, we've got this, you know, it's a Marvel comic. It's a Mar- it, Our intellectual property is so valuable, it is on the stands alongside Spider-Man and, and so valuable in that when you walk into that market and you see Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, they're Star Wars too. So now you're interacting with Star Wars while you're getting your six-pack of Pepsi and you're maybe get that for your son Billy and Billy reads it and goes, where can I get more of this? And you go, well, it's a movie. Because the adaptations in those days were always released a few months before to whet your appetite um, so that you would get excited about this comic book and then go on to see. It's, again, it's all part of advertising. It's And, and when it works... It works phenomenally. And in this case, everybody was knocking down Marvel's door to make sure that they were going to get the proper film adaptation to make their license, their property, is as exciting as Star Wars was. The Xanadu film adaptation was done by Rich Buckler, Mike Nasser. It really was Neil Adams' studio. Neil had a studio with a bunch of talented guys. They were great at likenesses, and they put out Xanadu as a, if you don't know what Xanadu is, it is a cult classic music spectacular fantasy musical with Olivia Newton-John as her follow-up to Grease, and it um, famously flopped at the box office, not for a lack of trying, but is there a comic book adaptation? Was it done by Marvel? Yes. Battlestar Galactica roars onto screens, small screens, TV screens, to the biggest ratings ABC had ever gotten. It was the top-rated event of that age. And, of course, Marvel was there with the film adaptation and immediately turned it around and put it into a dedicated series. And Battlestar Galactica, like Logan's Run, I think rises above the shows. I watched every show as a kid. I never missed it. It was my favorite TV show of that time. And I think the comic books are even more spectacular you're like Rob. You, you keep you, you hit this on the the nail again and again and again. Well, I'm going to give you some names. Walt Simonson, Walt Walter Simonson jumps on Battlestar Galactica, does about a 12 issue run, pencils and inks his own work on some of them. The ones that you can tell really he gets he has the most Jones about. But Klaus Janssen, you've heard that name before, is finishing him, and they take the crew on ex- spectacular adventures. And I'm going to give you a little clue here. Jack Kirby sat on a panel with me at a convention in 1990 and he looked out on on the crowd myself Mike Mignolo were on this panel and Jack Kirby who we were all in awe of we didn't even know how to speak into the microphone or why would we we were sitting next to the king of comics but somebody asked Jack about movie adaptations and Jack said well you know I I think comic books 
are the best way to explore this because we have unlimited budgets, unlimited budgets. My pencil, my eraser, and the paper that I'm going to draw on is, is, is the limit of my imagination. And, and I can put whatever I want on that paper because my imagination has no limit and it has no budget. I can destroy entire worlds and galaxies for the cost of my pencil and my eraser. And I, my mouth was on the floor. Whoa! No truer words had been spoken. And, and with that in mind, with, with, with Jack's exertion and that point made, Walt Simonson took the Battlestar Galactica, Apollo, Starbuck, Adama, all of them on greater adventures with bigger budgets than the TV show would allow for. And there is an issue of Battlestar Galactica where Walt has Apollo get attacked by basically a Terminator-level Cylon. When I say this, this is five years before the Terminator by James Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger would hit theaters. But the Cylons that would just fall down if you blasted them once, this, this was not that Cylon. He was called, I think, the Mark Seven. And he was a different-looking Cylon. He was not a traditional-looking Cylon. But ultimately, Apollo has to resort to dropping him into a volcano to defeat him because no manner of firepower from his Viper or his blaster could stop him. And it is this relentless, like Apollo's going, wow, I, I can't beat this thing. And the spacecrafts, the fist-to-fist combats, I mean... Apollo jumps out on the top of his Viper and, and leaps from it at one point. I mean, this is stuff that you did not see in the TV show. And Walt Simonson, again, huge influence. Influenced myself, Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Art Adams, the same array of artists that Michael Golden influenced. Walt is the same. So when I invoke his name, he is a top-flight, A-list, artistic talent. And he contributed to so many of these Battlestar Galacticas. There is also not a collected edition of these, which I assume is for another licensing snafu in that Marvel owns the rights to the published adaptations, which they can't publish without Universal's okay, and Universal can't take those and publish them somewhere else without Marvel's okay. Again, but again, we're off to the races. Close Encounters, Battlestar Galactica, Xanadu. These are just some of the films and TV projects that are now going through Marvel. What have these all gotten in common? Marvel Comics. I would love to give you a DC Comics adaptation at this time. They just did not exist. One of the big mothers that, 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 uh, of the licensing bonanza is ROM. R-O-M. You've never heard of ROM. It was a short-lived toy that had no success whatsoever, was a complete tank job, uh, did not go over with people, did not have... Uh, did not go over with kids. It was one, with micro, Micronauts. I was there collecting Micronauts a couple years back. I ponied up the cash actually through a bunch of trades. Uh, the retailer was happy enough, hello Dennis, to trade me a bunch of signatures on 90, New Mutants 98 and New Mutants 87, the first appearance of Cable and Deadpool, and I was able to get any complete collection of Micronauts t toys. Multiple boxes arrived at my house. I could not have been more excited uh, to, to play with these toys in my youth because it, there was a period where those toys, those Micronauts toys were more important to me than the Star Wars toys. They were more innovative, interesting. Uh, there was more mystery because there wasn't an established movie or cartoon to go along with it. But they, uh, they, they the Micronauts at least had a couple of years on the toy shelves. ROM was put out by Parker Brothers. Parker Brothers, a standalone ROM doll. They go for big coin if you find them. 
and you can get one. They are huge on the collector's market, but the comic book would last almost 100 issues as well. Same guy that wrote Micronauts, Bill Mantlo writes ROM, and ROM is here to rid us. There is an alien infestation on our planet called Dire Wraiths, the Dire Wraiths, and they take all sorts of form. It's like Invasion of the Body Snatcher, but if you... Uh, if they if their true form is unveiled, Marvel designed a really cool original alien concept where they looked really cool on their own. But Rom's weapon would both expose and destroy these uh, dire wraiths. And he lands on Earth a little out of sorts, has to get acclimated to who we are, what we are. In the meantime, the military is hunting him. Different Marvel superheroes are hunting them. Uh, the Dire Wraiths have made their way into the ranks of the X-Men and all these other Marvel characters. So again, you've got Rom interacting with the X-Men in an epic two-parter. He's interacting with Hulk, Power Man, Iron Fist, all of these characters. Rom has a glorious run, this character and this toy that you've never heard of, that goes on this killer run. Sal Buscema, the brother of John Buscema, another just pillar of Marvel's productivity throughout the Silver and Bronze Age, even through the Modern Age. The guy was a nonstop uh, workhorse genius, phenomenal uh, draftsman. He does like at least 40, 50 straight issues of ROM. It's, it's phenomenal, the work that he's able to put out. He may have done the whole run. I don't have them in front of me. I just know that those first several issues and, and along the way, who else but Michael Golden of Micronauts fame gives you a run of about a year's worth of covers that are like stunning standalone illustrations. There is... There is a shot of Rom uh, battling a bunch of the American uh, Air Force, uh, uh, the, these uh, the, these giant fighter planes, and he's ripping the wing off one of them. I believe it's above the nation's capital. It is such a stunning image. These these books were just top notch, top drawer, and they they went to the top of your list. They were among your favorites after X Men, Avengers, Daredevil. I mean, there's Micronauts and 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 Rom, and for a period. They're better than even the Avengers or the Fantastic Four. I mean, these are top flight draws, and you don't publish seven, eight years of something without the license uh, being very successful for you. So you got ROM, right? So so we've covered Godzilla, Shogun Warriors, Micronauts, Logan's Run, Xanadu, Close Encounters, Battlestar Galactica, all that. Star Trek. Star Trek, the motion picture goes on to be a dedicated line of new comic books. So at some point, when you go to the spinner rack, and you go to the shelf of your, of, your, of your market, you see, well, there's a Star Trek comic next to a Star Wars comic next to a Battlestar Galactica comic next to a Godzilla comic next to a Shogun Warrior. So what, what, what's on your toy shelves by Mattel and Parker Brothers and Mego, and what's on ABC Network and what's on the CBS Network, they're also comic books. Marvel seem to dominate in a way that, that with licenses that I have not seen before or since. Nowadays... Dark Horse, IDW, these guys split up these licenses that Marvel at one point all had in-house under their label. Marvel Comics emblazoned across them. And again, the thing that made them so much fun is exactly what prevents them from being experienced now because there is none, there is no, there is not a ROM collection. ROM was a huge hit in the early 80s. That book is not available to you right now uh, 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 in any sort of collection. It hasn't since the run dried up. 
no trade paperback, no hardcover. And there are fans, again, I'm, I'm on a bunch of different Facebook groups uh, that celebrate Bronze Age, Silver Age, the stuff of our youth, multiple ones. And the one gripe everybody has is, where's my Micronauts collection? Where's my Shogun Warriors? And the publishers who would like to get these licenses know that there is a diehard group of collectors who would uh, jump at this stuff. But they have so far, so, so I mean, we're talking hundreds of issues of Godzilla, of Shogun Warriors, of Battlestar Galactica, of ROM and Micronauts. I mean, between ROM and Micronauts alone, you get over 200 issues. So there's 300 plus issues of these runs that are not able to be collected, which is phenomenal to me, which is just, even when the Star Wars license went to Dark Horse and they had it for 20 years, they were able to reprint the Marvel collections via whatever deal, Lucasfilm cut, and they were able to put out different trade collections. So you could go buy those in different volumes. And since Star Wars returned to Marvel in 2014, Marvel has been able to repackage all the Dark Horse stuff. This, this, These Marvel licenses that drove the age, it is so ridiculous that there is no collections of these. So you have to buy these all as back issues to enjoy them to the max capacity. Whereas with... Uh, with, with uh, you know, Logan's Run, Battlestar Galactica, all of these, they are they are really hard to come by. They are, and they're even hard to find in, in some cases as back issues. When you go to the next convention, do your deep dive. But we are going to round out about the last 15, 20 minutes of this talking about the two licenses that would go on to be the most dominant and would become bestsellers, like, like jump over in some cases X-Men for the time. And that is G.I. Joe and the Transformers. So G.I. Joe is on its last legs when I'm a kid, except I don't know that. G.I. Joe is now an adventure uh, hero. They're, 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 he, he, he heads an adventure team. He has a kung fu grip. You can look through the back of his head. He has an eagle eye, which is you know a cool little per, uh, periscope or a, a telescope in his eye. They did really creative things with G.I. Joe. He wore like military fatigues, but he was now part of an adventure team. Even so much to give him superheroes. He had a bionic atomic man comrade. He had a, a guy named the Bullet Man. Um, they, bought, they, they fought like aliens because the original wartime G.I. Joe to toys had, had to be semi-watered uh, down because of the controversy that was going on with the Vietnam War when I was a wee lad. And so they changed it to the adventure team where he's just a guy out, you know, with with kind of military style weapons and components, but he didn't have a direct correlation to the military anymore. He's just an adventure hero. Well, if you have watched the brilliant Toys That Made Us G.I. Joe episode, you know that that didn't go over well, and uh, eventually they discontinued the line for a very long time. The decision to bring G.I. Joe back was Reagan-era brilliance. Um, the, the Ronald Reagan, eight years in the White House, had a huge military bend, uh, you know, Patri patriotism and military kind of seem to go hand in hand whether you agree with the idea of that happening or not is irrelevant think of Tom Cruise in Top Gun um, the producer has gone back of Top Gun and said oh I, I regret that it made so many, so many people sign up for the military and become Air Force pilots because it wasn't meant as military propaganda that's all well and good the movie stands on its own as a fantastic entertaining piece of pop cinema but in the same way you can't deny that there was something about military, whether it was the rogue of Rambo or the brilliance of Maverick. Uh, military 
characters and heroes were big, big draws, big deal. I think because we had a big cowboy in the White House and Ronald Reagan, and he loved our military and talked about it all the time. The makers of G.I. Joe decided to go full on and create a new military uh, team and really loaded it up with some of the best and brightest of these new characters in conjunction with the brilliant Larry Hama and all of the creators at the toy company, they would uh, create this new line of G.I. Joe, the real American hero. And again, you can't even... I, I've been drawing G.I. Joe comics for the uh, the the last little bit here uh, of, of, of the last year because I've got this new Snake Eyes comic book coming out that I very much want to share with you, but that's still a few weeks away, but it, it kind of dovetails into what we're talking about. But... Uh, whenever I draw it, I hear the theme song, and forgive me, I'll step away from the microphone a little bit, when he goes, you know, real American hero, G.I. Joe is there. Oh, I mean, it was a jingle. It was a jingle, man. It really got into your into your noggin, and, and those commercials were nonstop, and Marvel, Marvel had created an animation uh, division that was producing the, uh, the, 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 the G.I. Joe cartoon, which would go on to be this fantastic, uh, massive hit. It was on in the afternoons. Uh, I was too old as a kid, really, to be that wired in at the time, but I know that it took the nation by storm. Now, in in the early comic book that was released, we got our good friend, our good buddy, Herb Trimpey, back again, the master of the licensed toys, Shogun Warriors, Godzilla, he steps up to the plate and he does the first year's worth of G.I. Joe Real American Hero with Duke, with Scarlet, with Snake Eyes, with Roadblock, with Cobra, with Destro. I mean, the the idea of G.I. Joe having this, you know, kind of terrorist group called Cobra to battle was, I mean, it was really simple. The good guys, the bad guys, very clean cut. Storm Shadow uh, and Snake Eyes brought in that really cool... Um, you know, uh, that, that really cool, uh, you know, Asian flavor, mysticism, you know, Yakuza, samurais, all the stuff that kids like me just, we poured over. And Hasbro had a monster hit on its hands. And when G.I. Joe number one came out, double-sized, Herb Trimpey, Bob McLeod, Larry Hama blows up, blows up. And, 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 and issue two became the hot comic on the market on the convention scene in 1983 because people didn't order enough of number one as they uh, uh, they didn't order as many quantities of issue two as they did of issue one and the demand was so big that now issue two sold out and nothing helps a comic book and its momentum than by selling out your second issue and then suddenly retailers are scrambling orders are through the roof and kids are Go, flipping over the fact because as some of you may know they were able to promote the comic book on the cartoon that was part of the hand in hand deal that they had with Marvel that the comic book would get a bumper on the cartoon so you finish the cartoon and just as I said to you that the licenses wanted their their product Battlestar Galactica Star Wars Star Trek on the on the on the spinner rack which was in every 7-Eleven again you got to remember Think about how many of these markets there were. There wasn't just 7-Eleven. A couple of you guys have, have actually, in your comments, 
told me about the different markets that you shopped at. And you know what? We had stop and goes, okay? We had you totem, the giant green U on the big yellow block. You totem, stop and go. These marts were all over from New Mexico to Arizona to Texas to Southern California. These were your gas station stops, your quick snack stops, and comic books were always prominently racked right next to them. So if, like me, you grab those comics and you consume them, you also were more inclined to go along with the material that it was licensed from. So in this case, you don't need a spinner rack. G.I. Joe's got a cartoon that's coming on every day after school that is the number one rated cartoon that is telling you to go buy this super hot comic book from Marvel Comics. So Marvel Comics rides G.I. Joe to unprecedented sales success. I mean, Marvel cannot miss with the licenses. Star Wars, G.I. Joe are their two biggest claim to fame. Also Conan. Conan, Star Wars, G.I. Joe. Maybe the other ones are like, you know, base, base hits. You know, but the home runs are Star Wars, G.I. Joe, and Transformers. Because, once again, at the same time, riding on the uber success of G.I. Joe comes in these uh, giant robots. You know, robots in disguise. I, I just, these, these jingles and these commercials, they are just completely in my dome. I think of them all the time. And, uh, and Marvel gets... Transformer shortly after it gets the uh, the G.I. Joe license and they have another hit on their hands. And Transformers is equal to the success that they experience with G.I. Joe. And imagine all that money that Marvel's bringing in on these licenses. And again, it, it, it it's by the time you get to, to G.I. Joe, you're 1983. I mean, you've had a good seven-year run where... Uh, where 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 these um, these licenses have have again become a third of your line. They are a third of your line now. What I failed to mention, and I don't want to overlook because I want to go back to Raiders of the Lost Ark. I, in between the first and the second, when it became obvious that Indiana Jones was now going to become a franchise like Star Wars, they launched a dedicated monthly Indiana Jones comic book. I'm going to give you three guesses who drew the launch of that comic book. Three guesses, okay? You're first going to say, well, he says George Perez a lot. No. He says Walt Simonson a lot. No. To my knowledge, one of the only adapt adapted works to his credit is by who other than John Byrne, who you're like, is, is John Byrne name dropped in every episode? Well, he's that big of a deal during this entire period. John Byrne and Terry Austin, the X-Men team, launched the Indiana Jones dedicated original Marvel series where they do original stories outside of the movies. And again, another hit on uh on, on in, in Marvel's uh in in Marvel's you know, cap, another feather in that cap because they just cannot stop making hit licensed products. It is phenomenal how successful that these uh that these products are for them. And and so imagine if you're the you're the competitors and you're like, okay, so they have all the toys. They have ROM, they have Star Wars, they have Battlestar Galactica, toys and TV shows. There were, there were toys for Battlestar Galactica too. They have all the toys, they have the TV shows, they have the movie franchises with Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That you know, they would do Dune. Marvel does Dune. Bill Sinkevich 
illustrates Dune. I hope that they release a trade collection. Bill Sienkiewicz, possibly the most accomplished illustrator, painter in comics. The most accomplished. His, his covers, his, his talents go way beyond comic books. And at the apex of his abilities, he does the Dune uh, movie adaptation. There is The Last Starfighter. I mean, again, do not sleep on these. There is a generous amount of... of the, the movies are countless. Marvel does Blade Runner. Blade Runner is not a hit, but Marvel does a Blade Runner comic book drawn by the same guy that does their Star Wars adaptation, the amazing uh, newspaper artist who went to be this incredible movie adaptation artist for Marvel, Al Williamson, who is, again, in the pillar of great illustrators beyond just a great comic book cartoonist. So... Blade Runner, Indiana Jones, again, John Byrne, Terry Austin. How do you not eat that up? Oh, those those Indiana Jones issues. There's only two of them that they launched. And then the rest of the creative team goes on. But what a way to launch with the guys who brought you the record-selling, best-selling, uh, you know, X-Men run. But Transformers hits, and we've, you know, Marvel's already got a huge success, uh, success uh, launch. Or, or, or they've they've had experience they've experienced success with giant robots with Shogun Warriors. So now you've got this even slicker, slicker, uh, uh, much streamlined, you know, cars and trucks and planes that turn into robots that are here battling against other robots that are here that are disguised as vehicles with this giant alien war. So this is all a product of 1984 and. You know, Hasbro is smart enough to carry this as well. So two of Hasbro's, I know they're carrying it by by uh, by Tomy Toys, but, you know, Transformers like G.I. Joe would get a movie, is a daily cartoon strip. And so where, in my opinion, and we'll cover this in another uh, episode, the, 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 the Marvel comic book heroes in the 80s kind of ran out of steam between 83 and 86, 87 is my least favorite period for Marvel Comics. It's the stuff that I'm not as crazy about. But the licensed stuff is paying all the bills for them. Transformers and G.I. Joe are just uh, just runaway hits. G.I. Joe gets a second series out of it. Uh, they, they do two dedicated monthly G.I. Joe series. The, again, I cannot underscore how important Herb Trimpey from Hulk fame becomes their go-to licensed guy. Godzilla... Shogun Warriors, G.I. Joe. Now, luckily and fortunately for us, we get these great G.I. Joe comics and these great Transformers comics in, in collected editions. They've been, you know, uh, negotiated. They've been allowed to make those happen. IDW has been making G.I. Joe and Transformers comics for the better part of the last two decades, and they're phenomenal. They're amazing. G I IDW also has the Turtles and numerous other fantastic licenses, and they have... Uh, really done right by those properties in my opinion they're, they're fantastic and it's it carries on a great tradition like i said dark horse had conan for a while it had gi joe for a brief period in another episode we'll, we'll carry uh when i was uh supposed to have the gi joe license and recently they they've unearthed a guy who worked at hasbro put all the memos out of when i was going to do gi joe which is hysterical because I didn't know that they were so invested in me doing it at the time but if you read these memos it's it's the deal was done before the deal was done unfortunately it just wasn't the vision I had for the stuff in the mid 90s I I, I really wanted to bring a more uh, Japanese anime 
vibe to the Titan, uh, not to the Titans, the G, to GI Joe. In short, if you're familiar with Pat Labor or Macross or Evangelion, those are uh, the, the the vibes I wanted to bring to GI Joe with exoskeletons and robots, and so Duke and Scarlet, they'd have these exoskeleton scoots, suits that would become part of their. Um, you know, armory, and also I wanted to push the boundaries and get get GI Joe out into space a little. And if that sounds awful to you, well, then you didn't get to experience. But Hasbro and I never closed the deal on it. But uh, in the interim, it went to Dark Horse after we could not come to terms. But uh, GI Joe has been at IDW. It has been at Devil's Due. The Micronauts was at Devil's Due. The Micronauts has been at IDW. IDW has really stepped up and been a go-to for uh, a lot of great. Uh, toys of our youth except you know the transformers are just as much toys of my son's youth as they are of mine my my uh my my son when he was three and four his grandfather and i were laughing the other day because he my son turned 20 and we were laughing at how we would give these bigger i mean luke got so many transformers toys it was his go-to you know love of his life and and then it was to the point where we were running out of stuff to get him off the shelf and the big birthday and Christmas occasions cause, you know, were, 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 were cause for those big giant Transformers toys that, that looked like a car came in them. And we watched as Luke would open the box, put out the pieces, and we were like, oh my gosh, we can't help him. We're, we're limited. And his grandfather and I were just completely limited in our capacity to help him. And he'd look at, look up at us like, look, I got this at, at, at four years old and snap it all into place. And we'd be like, how did he do that? It was like Rain Man toothpick level like what um those are my kids favorite toys for the better part of six seven years of their childhood so transformers also along with the giant michael bay movies which i know get these ridiculous reactions and and we're supposed to look past the fact that they made billions of dollars drove people to the cineplexes repeat viewings thorough enjoyment and and what five movies now i mean these were these were a lot of fun and and I just I enjoy the Transformers movies a great deal. They're mindless, fun entertainment, glossy, uh, great rides that I enjoy taking. And they really powered Transformers through. I thought the last Bumblebee, Bumblebee movie with Haley Stanfield was a blast as well. I hope to see more. I know that GI Joe Henry Golding is going to be Snake Eyes in a standalone, you know, spinoff film that's coming up. So this isn't just nostalgia. This is of the now. Now Micronauts. There's rumored. They're trying to bring it back. Hasbro has it now and ROM and do a dedicated film universe. I hope so. But more than that, I hope they get these books out so we can look at them in handsome collections with on nice paper. You know, you're going to go get Micronauts in your back issue bins, probably for two to three bucks a pop. But, you know, hopefully they're in decent enough condition. And look, they're there to read. Read them, consume them that way. They're not collectibles. They're on my spinner rack to, to for kids to pull off and thumb through the way I did. I don't, I have a spinner rack and each slot has five to six books in each slot. There's 12 slots on this really super tall spinner rack. I, they are there not to be bagged and boarded. They are there to be uh, p pulled off by my nephew, my, my, my nephews, my three nephews, my friends, kids, people who just want to peruse the books or myself. Who am I kidding? But uh, the licenses that defined an era, these, these, Shogun Warriors, Godzilla, they are not forgotten. They were huge contributors to the time. Logan's Run, Hunt It Down, George Perez, Klaus Janssen, Battlestar Galactica by Walter Simonson, uh, 
all the great Star Wars comics we covered, all the great G.I. Joe, the Transformers comics, Bob Budiansky, um, uh, these guys rose to the occasion and delivered some really amazing comic books that, uh, that, that, that stand the test of time. And you're going to have to go for a deep dive at your comic book store to get a hold of them because they're just not readily available in these collections, which is a huge gripe, which is a huge wrong that we need to write. Michael Golden, the Micronauts first 12 issues on artistic merit alone, people want collected. Forget that it's a toy license or the license here on the artistic merits alone. Those uh, 260 pages are magnificent and I want them in the worst way, but they launched a franchise that went on for a decade in comics when the toys were gone. Eight, eight more years in comics. Micronauts toys, ROM toys, Shogun Warriors, they all had a two, two to three year window except for ROM. ROM had like a six month window. But so there you have it, the licenses that define comics and push Marvel to all new sales, uh, you know, sales levels, sales rankings, just, just thoroughly ensconce them as the absolute pillar of comics. DC would eventually dabble in this, but if it was even close, I would have mentioned more of what they uh, brought to the table. But when you've got this run of licenses on par with what Marvel did and the movies that I've listed, the TV shows I've listed, and the toys I've listed. It was because I really believe it all started with Star Wars and the breakaway success, and people love a winner, and they love number one, and they migrate to number one, and, and to Marvel's credit, they never phone these books in. My, when I'm telling you about John Byrne, George Perez, Walt Simonson, and Michael Golden, and Herb Trimpey, these are legends of comics. They're not just fly-by-night uh, hire-outs, to do fill-in work. None of these guys are journeymen. They're all, they, they, they set this gold standard for art. So Marvel always, always made sure that these books had top talent behind them, which is why they were so darn successful and so much fun to experience. I would love to pour over these comics with you right now. I hope you hunt them down. Let's hope for trade collections in the future. Guys, thank you again for joining me on Raw Observations. What a fun time. I love, uh, kind of peeling back the curtain on all this stuff, reminding you that where we are now is because of where we've been in the culture and so much of it had to do with comic books. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. I am at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. The blue check is behind my name. In both instances, do not follow the dummy accounts, the, the phony accounts, the fake accounts. The blue check tells you that you are hanging out with me. I love your input. I read about it online, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. Um, thank you for the great reviews you've been giving me. Um, thank you for spending time with me, guys. We will talk again in the very near future. Uh, new installments are available twice a week. Guys, have a great time. Be safe. Enjoy your summer. Take care.